Hi guys, welcome back to the Miss Independent Podcast, where we teach women to be more confident investors, entrepreneurs, and go further in their careers. I'm so excited to introduce this next guest to you guys. We had such a great conversation the first time around that we decided to have him back for part two. So this is part one. Stay tuned. Part two is dropping next week. You guys are going to love it. There are just so many great nuggets and gems in this one, and I'm so excited to share it with you. And I know I say that every single time, but trust me, guys, this is a good one. On today's episode, we have David Douglas Greenberg as our special guest. And if you're wondering who he is and what he's done, well, he's done a lot. He has more than 25 years of experience in leadership, public speaking, and consulting work. He's currently the president of Greenberg Capital. He served as an executive board and board member of the New York Mercantile Exchange, or NYMEX, and he oversaw a decade of its largest growth, from $800 million to $12 billion. Notably, at the time, it was the world's largest physical commodities exchange. And while at NYMEX, David was the chairman of Corporate Governance, Marketing, International Expansion, Electronic Trading, and Security Committees. He's had 20 years of experience as the president of Sterling Commodities and helped shape the firm into one of the largest local clearinghouses at NYMEX. He served as Director of Development for the Executive Education at Florida Atlantic University. He's a seasoned guest speaker, and he's graced the podiums of the world's most prestigious colleges and universities like West Point Military Academy, Columbia Business School, NYU, Syracuse, and Sacred Heart. He currently serves on the Executive Committee of Junior Achievement of South Florida and the Leadership Council for the United Negro College Fund of South Florida. So he's had an incredibly successful career, and he's a globally renowned and noted market analyst and media contributor. He's had appearances on CNN, Fox Business News, Bloomberg, CNBC, and today he's going to be on the Miss Independent podcast. I told you guys he did a lot. And what inspires me most about David is he's got so much going on, but he still finds time to give back to the community and inspire the next generation of business leaders. So without further ado, let's jump into it. David, thanks so much for coming on today. So I want to start off and just ask you how you have the time to do all the things that you do because you've had an amazing career. So I want to talk to you first about what you do now and Greenberg Capital, and then we can talk about how you got there and your whole trajectory and all the amazing stories that you have for us. Oh, no, thank you. Greenberg Capital is really just a family office right now. We kind of banded together as a family to do projects and you know, to look at deals and um, it's, it's kind of the cover of allowing me to do a lot of the other stuff that I do, uh, which is really, you know, right now where I am in life, I'm in a, I'm in a wonderful position where I'm a far, firm believer in, you know, giving back and, and helping out the future generation leaders like, like you, you know, and other people. And I've done a, a lot of teaching and, you know, at all these different colleges or whatever, um, as it's a, it's a, been a great life. So I think it's very important. Um, and sometimes it gets me a little frustrated when I hear all these people uh, online, you know, about, you know, they're just sensationalizing everything. And, and I kind of just, I'm more the quiet one. If I'm asked, I'll talk about it or I'll give some key points. But, you know, I'm not trying to sell any products. I'm not trying to sell any books. I'm not trying to say, hey, come to my mastermind and I will teach you how to rule the world. I'm just like, hey, listen, let me just see what I can do to help you out. It's my gift giving back. And, and it's something that I really enjoy. I love that, David. Something that I want to do definitely in my career is uh, is teach like at an academic level. So curious how you got there. How did you start teaching? How did you become a guest lecturer? Oh, great question. Well, I had a very unusual job. You know, there are millions of lawyers, millions of doctors, millions of teachers. Teachers are the most important, but millions of teachers, uh, surgeons you know, bakery people. There were only literally a few thousand of us in the world of what we did. And, you know, so I, I started out my career at 22. I was uh, graduated Syracuse University up in uh, another cold part of the country mm-hmm. and um, went right to Chicago to uh, be a runner on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And I went to Chicago because my father at that time was a trader in New York and I didn't want to kind of get into his circle. You know, because, you know, we all like kind of stepping out and doing our own thing. So I was in Chicago making $3.75 an hour as a runner, started at the dead bottom, um, but knew that there was a path for me to get into the trading pit. And it's where my first mentor in trading came in. And I kind of kept the low profile of, of who I was there until about the third week. 
when this guy called Rafael Winkle, he literally is this old guy. Imagine an old guy about five foot three, um, uh, red hair, beard, old, but an old beard. Not like, like a, these cool beards that you see in your generation now. Like, not like look- a glitter beard. I don't yeah, know if no, you've seen those. But- no, I know. That's a whole other thing. But this was, you know, this is an old timer. And he, I'll never forget, I was walking by him and he grabs me and he goes, kid. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I know who you are. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, well, I know that, you know, you're from, you're really from New York. You're here. This is your apprenticeship, whatever. And he gave me the greatest advice that changed my life. He, he said to me, he goes, listen, he goes, I've been here for 30 years and I will never have the chance to get into the pit, the trading pits. He goes, you will have a trajectory to get into the pits. He goes, but once you're in there, they don't care who your father is. They don't care who your family is. They don't care who you are. They will gun at you. They are going to try to rip you apart, especially because you might have had a little bit easier path than some of us that made it. So he said, let me give you some advice. He goes, don't ever walk in here. Now, you have to imagine the trading floor. The trading floor was 25,000 square feet of open columnless space with 40-foot ceilings with these round circles that kind of went into the ground with hundreds of people in them with bodies flying, people spinning, elbows going. You know, it wasn't the stock market where you see on TV where they tap on somebody's shoulder. This was craziness. You know, this was on a whole different level. David, can I ask you what it was like trading back in the day? Like, who were some of those key players? I've heard of runners before, but who were those key figures in the pit? Everybody was a key player. And that was the cool thing about the pit. So this is what I want you to imagine. I want you to have your viewers close their eyes and imagine walking onto into this room that was 25,000 square feet of open columnless space with 40 foot ceilings with wall boards and these multi different colors that, that when the market went down, the letter, the numbers were in red and the market went up, it was in, in green, when it was stable, it was yellow. And when you walk into the trading floor, it's like walking into a stadium. So you hear nothing. And as you come onto the floor, you know, and, and one time when we used to walk, you know, the escalators, you feel the hair on the back of your neck, you know, just kind of lift because you could feel the energy you know, in the room that was coming out and you walk in and then the crude oil pit was in the back. So I would have to go, you know, buy the heating oil pit, but to get to the crude oil pit, think about all these phone lines. Okay. Cause we didn't have cell phones. We weren't allowed to have cell phones on the, you know, so there were phone cords. So imagine like pulling up all these and ducking under the phone lines and like working your way out. And there were one time that I literally, cause everybody's in the pit, this is round circle with multi-steps on the way down. And it was so tight that, at times, this one guy used to pick up his feet and he wouldn't fall because his shoulders were so cramped in. Um, and I had sent him pictures and there was, I mean, my clerk, this girl would go through my legs, okay, and look at me and say, can I have your cards? And I would, or I would crumple them up and I'd throw them up and over the guy behind me and she would catch it and she couldn't get in like during the Gulf War. And imagine, you know, being in your most crowded elevator, okay, with people screaming at you spitting at them when they're screaming, jockeying for position, and that there was a guy from the, you were on the left corner of the elevator and you wanted to get something from the person in the far back of the right elevator and you had to work your way through those people or get that person's attention in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, so the trading floor, and you had all these different pits. You had the gold pit, the silver pit, the copper pit, the blue oil pit, the natural pits, a lot of pits. So it was all separated by commodity? All separated by commodity. You never had the same commodity in the same pit until the end when it was built with nobody on the floor. So they put it all in one pit. So, and, and literally gold and silver was on a different floor, you know, a different trading floor. So above us. So, you know, just imagine that when you're at a football game or a basketball game or whatever your favorite thing is, a tennis match, and your team wins on that last second shot with no time left and they were down. And that feeling of exhilaration that comes, that's what it was like being down there all day long. Okay. And, you know, you can scream if you're having a bad day, you went, you screamed and yelled, you got it out, you know, but you know, you did the way that you traded was, you know, when you wanted to buy something, your hand went towards you because when you buy, you bring things towards you. When you wanted to sell your palms were out pushing something away. And then you look across the ring and everybody's bidding and offering the same thing. Now, funny, if you want to buy something now, you just push the button and buy it. So let's say you and I went to the broker and went, buy him. And let's say the broker didn't like me that day, right? He wanted me to take out his sister. I said, no. Okay. He literally looked at me and says, you're getting nothing. And look at you and say, how many do you want? Because it was recognition trading. They didn't have to trade with you. Mm-hmm. So it was a much different thing. So it was a much more, much different dynamic. We had, 
a lot of guys in the splits field that were up on the top part of the rankings, they were big and know that they were doing that they were the paper markers. But, you know, people were yelling and screaming and we had hand signals and stuff for your viewers to understand, but you couldn't figure out straight up one and two, like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And there were all these, you know, and there were mistakes that happened. There were times that I thought I traded with somebody, but I traded with the guy behind him, but the guy in front of him thought, and we called those were out trades. And let's say you and I had an out trade. You thought I traded with you, but I didn't. We would always split. You know, it was always against us. We would say, okay, it's cost 10,000. You eat 5,000, I'll eat 5,000. We'd rip each other to shreds. You know, we'd call each other every name in the book. But we knew that neither one of us did it to hurt the other person. It was just a mistake. Um, because if you lied once on the floor, you were done. And there was a trader that once lied, scratched some trades off his card, and he could never, he literally never walked back on the floor, ever, after that, when he was caught. So the crazy thing is, is that when you saw those people screaming and yelling in that circle, um, it was orderly. We understood it like it was a, like it was a symphony. Because think about going to symphony and hearing each instrument at the same time as hearing the symphony. Our ears got so tuned that I could be at a restaurant at night and I would tell people about the five conversations and the three tables that were behind us. Okay, because you just learned to listen around you. You got to see around, you were never tunnel vision. And the most important thing, which really hurt me the most when I lost my sight in my right eye, nothing got past us because we were always on a state of awareness, either we were in the pit or out of the pit. Because think about all that information flow coming in and you had to make decisions based upon everything from how loud somebody's voice was to what their face looked like to when the order was handed to him to the way he turned around um, or she turned around. Um, and there was all these variables and you had to, you know, instantaneously make a decision off that. So, you know, there are times I make decisions now, people look at me like, really? Like, yeah, that will fix it. You know, and I mean, we make very fast decisions and we were in and out of trades all day long. And it, it was, it was great. And during the Gulf War, um, there were times that you were so crazy that you just shut up because you knew that the market was too crazy for you and that was fine. And then there was during hurricanes, we'd get these major moves, but there was nothing else. It was like going to the Super Bowl every day. And I missed it every day, you know, it, to the point where it kind of hurts when you think about not being down there. Uh, and if your viewers ever want to you know, look up, you know, Nymex trading, N-Y-M-E-X trading, or the Nymex trading floor, they'll see videos and they'll see pictures and they'll go, this is crazy. And it was, especially now with the computers and everything so perfectly in line, but it was awesome. If you ever, you're too young, but Google the movie trading places, trading scene, and you'll see what we did. Um, Not Wolf of Wall Street style. Wolf of Wall Street gets me ticked off because, first of all, I only traded my own money. He ruined people's lives, you know, and this is what really gets me because he ruined, he, he stole or ripped off $200 million of people's lives. He ruined people and they make a movie about him. And now he's on the Internet because people think he's cool after going to jail, you know, for X amount of years and destroying people's literally people's families. But because of the social media concept that we're in. You know, this younger generation said, oh, he's the wolf of Wall Street. I mean, the guy did a bad thing. And I spent 30 years of my career and didn't have one compliance problem ever. I, I did it the right way. I only traded my own money. I never hurt anybody. I, and, and to see what's going on, you know, so when people say wolf of Wall Street, I'm like, no, it has, that was just total BS, you know, and it gave all of us a, a bad name, you know. So, so imagine we're in this pit. So he says to me, he goes, he goes, David, he goes, I don't care. And I used to do this to my, my, my interns, too. I used to do the same thing to them, and I'll tell you how. He says, I don't care what you do during the day, but you got to learn something every day. He goes, watch the runner. When they get the order, how fast do they move to the pit? Do they walk? Do they run? Do they sprint? Because if they're walking, the order's not close. If they're running, it's kind of close. If they sprint, it's on the market. When you're in the ring, you're going to be able to pick these things up, see the broker grab the ticket. You're going to look at the broker's face. You're going to see his facial reactions. You're going to see his body language or her body language. He goes, I want you to learn something every day. He goes, I want you to learn how the clock moves, how people look over their shoulder. As a clerk looking at another clerk, are they having an affair? Are they not having an affair? Are they you know, going out? Are they just friends? He goes, every day, learn something. Because there's no other place on the planet where so much is going on in such a small space. And if you learn how to read the room, you will do fine when you get into the pit. And anybody that's gunning for you won't make a difference. So I did that for about a year. Then we went back to New York, worked for my father for a little bit. 
traded gold for a very short amount of time. And then the Gulf War came in, hit, and I went over to the New York Mercantile Exchange, which is like, you see how we're on two different screens here? Imagine two different sides of the trading floor. So you had the gold exchange on one side, that was what we call a green badge, as you see these badges behind me, it's a green badge, and then a yellow badge was the Merc. Now it was kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys, the old rivalries, they hated each other. So I moved over to the exchange that hated my family and hated my father the most. And over- Just to many, take him off, for sure. Yeah, no, it did, because they're like, okay, we're gonna rip this guy apart. And you know what? I gave everybody the, um, the proper respect and I went all the way to the bottom of the pit. Because you, as you get bigger and a better trader, you start moving up closer to the top of the pit. And the interesting thing was, this one time, this guy got into a car accident. Um, it was one of the twins, and I heard he broke his ankles. So I jumped up to his spot because everybody had a spot in the ring. I'll send you pictures, you know, so you can see what I'm talking about. Yep, we'll put and them in the show notes. Yeah. So people are yelling at me like, "How can you stand in this guy's spot?" And I go, "Listen, I'm holding this spot warm." The day he comes back, I will gladly step down. I'm not looking to take over his spot, but he's not standing here. He's going to be out for a little while. Well, it turned out he went out on disability and he never came back. So that ended up being my spot. But it kind of shows that sometimes you literally got to jump into the spot to, to make a name for yourself. Yeah. You got to open so, your own doors. You have to. And the key thing is, and let's say somebody, somebody once said, well, you had the door open for you. I said, I had it open for me, but I kicked it wide open once I got in. And, you know, I, so... To make a long story short, I traded there for uh, 20 years, but you know, so I say to people that say, "Well, you were a board member, you're an executive committee member, you helped grow the exchange from 800 million, helped take it public for 12 and a half billion dollars." And I'm like, I say to my kids, I'm like, you don't realize there was 15 years in there of the worst committee service work you've ever seen. I had to go on all the lousy committees. I had my first election that, um, let's just say, boys from the neighborhood came over to me, I was running against one of their guys and I was in my late twenties and they go, we're gonna crush you, you know? And I'm like, cause you know, NYMEX politics was a contact sport. It was Staten Island, Bronx, Brooklyn. It was very, very tough down there. Mm-hmm. I was not one of them. And um, he goes, you're not gonna win. You should just pull out. I'm like, well, don't you wanna hear my concepts and my this and my platform? And they're like, no, we don't really care what you say. You're going, you're running against my friend and we're gonna destroy you. We have a message from a few people, whatever it takes, we're gonna make sure you absolutely get your butt kicked. So I don't drop out because right there, that's the challenge. But they said to me, as I was walking away, they grabbed me and they go, we just want you to know you're too young, but we're gonna keep our eye on you. And when we feel you're ready, we're gonna do everything we can to make sure you get elected. So I totally got my butt kicked out of 840 votes. I lost by like, I think 400. So it was, it was a crazy, it was bad. It was one of the bad, worst wipeouts ever. But you still ran. I did run. And then I ran the next year. And I lost by eight votes. Wow. And this is with 800 phone calls, 800 letters, talking to all the members, getting, you know, getting up and speaking. And I was a young person. Then the next year, I ran and I lost by four votes. So I had somebody walk by, walk by one of the pits and they're like, I'm so sorry, we would have all voted for you, but we thought you were going to win, but the guy's in our training pits and we don't want to piss him off. So I'm like, okay. Next year, my mother gets sick. I pull out of the race. She had cancer, which she ended up dying a year later at 55. Um, the next year I went in, I won. Spent three years on the board, won the next term. When after the second term, the, the chairman and I didn't get along and he was out to, because you know, I was the guy on the board that actually asked questions. So um, he said he was going to go after me. And he literally said to somebody in my office, what's David going to do when he's not on the board? So meanwhile, I won that election. And then when the board was brought down from 24 to 14, when we just before we went to, um, you know, to the IPO, not only did I win the election, but I got on, I got on the um, executive committee. So, and I was a medium trader. I don't walk around telling everybody I was this, you know, big trader or whatever. But I have to tell you something. What I teach the kids and what I talk about in all my lectures is don't let your grades define you. I was not a great student. When I went up to Syracuse to teach for the first time, and that's where this all started, because Syracuse was my alma mater, and I would bring the kids down to the trading floor. I'd pay for them to come down to teach them about trading and teach them what it was like to be on, you know, in that kind of environment. And then I would go up and I'd teach classes. So there was one time I went up and I met for lunch with everybody. And they, uh, one woman that I knew starts laughing. 
And I'm like, what's so funny? So she says, well, we took a vote and I've been elected to ask you this question. You know, so I'm like, okay. She goes, did you ever go to class? So I said, I go, you looked up my grades, didn't you? She goes, yeah, you're the lowest GPA that's ever come to school. The only A you got was a marriage and family and you're divorced. So we're just trying to figure this out. How'd you do this? He goes, you're one of the most successful speakers that we've ever had. I said, it's very easy. I never let my grades define me. I go, when everybody was in school or the classes and I didn't go to class, I had a business in college. It's called Campus Promotions. I did every t-shirt, every fraternity, every sorority, every bar. And then I sold the company to a bar in Syracuse because he goes, why should I pay you this money? I said, because I made $1,500 off you every time you order. You know, so what I try to explain to the kids is that don't let your grades define you. You can be a C student, do really well. I've seen A student people from Harvard do absolutely awful. You know, well, there's, so, this, there's this quote that the C students end up becoming entrepreneurs that hire all of the A students and all the people right. from Harvard, right? Right. No. And, and it's actually, well, the people from Harvard think they can do it on their own all the time and they fail. And then the C students are used to failing, so they don't mind when they do fail. So they get back up, brush themselves off and go keep going. You know, so I believe it's much harder to be a C and B student than it is to be an A student. There are some A students that have to work extremely hard to become an A student. And I respect that. But we all know that some of those people that could read, write, regurgitate, just remember everything, but they knew nothing about it. I mean, I, there are people that would walk into the pit from these great schools and we would just tear them apart because they weren't ready to be, you know, there is something to be said about putting your schooling together with your sweet, sweet street smarts, along with your, you know, aggression and, and will to succeed, um, than just showing up at the door like some of these people think that, oh, because they went to XYZ, that they've made it. And what people don't realize is that. The journey is literally just beginning. Um, and, you know, if you, you know, it's like in my last post about, you know, get used to screwing up because you're going to do it a lot. Uh, some of these people just aren't used to screwing up. So let's hear it for the C students and the B students, you know, um, and for the A students that work their butt off to get there. And so, um, so that's, that's basically the short end of it. But, you know, so I got into teaching because there's a great movie called Justice League um, when, the Flash gets into the group for the first time and they're in the dangerous spot and there's like all these people that they got to save. So Batman walks over to him and he goes, um, come on, we need you to save these people. He's like, no, I'm not in this for this. I just kind of enjoyed being with the group. So Batman goes, come here. And Flash goes, well, he goes, just save one. Just go over there and get one. So the Flash goes over, grabs one, pulls him back to the other side of safety. And he goes, oh. And then he goes, hang on for a second. Go get another one. And he comes back and he goes, Oh, and then he goes back and gets another one and he sees how good it felt to help these people. And then his whole mindset changed. So the first day that I was in school and I could see the look on some of the, the kids' faces because listen, when I go in, I get them up screaming and yelling. If you ever see some of my videos, I, you always see the screaming and yelling in the beginning of the longer videos. And I get these kids up pumped and I tell them, it was like going to the Super Bowl every day and it was awesome. And I've immediately got their attention that this isn't going to be like any other lecture they had. And once you get that thrill of feeling that you've helped out somebody and that you see that you've helped change the direction, um, it, it, it means so much. I mean, I mentor so many kids and so many young adults, and I, I, you know, I don't charge them. And they say to me, they go, um, how are we going to repay you? And I go, it's very simple. I go, when you're 75 years old and you're looking at your grandkid, just tell them one day that you met somebody that made a difference. And I said, I don't even care if you remember my name. So because at the end of the day, money doesn't, isn't going to define you. I've made a lot of money in life. I've had some really big days. and It didn't define me as much as the day that I'm on the board of Junior Achievements down here of South Florida. And we see 50,000 um, Broward students a year, you know, mostly underserved. 78% of them are underserved, fifth and eighth graders. And some kid followed me into the bathroom one day and said, listen, I don't have a dad. And, and what you just taught me is just going to make such a difference in my life. And that was better than any trade any amount of money, any IPO, anything, any CNBC thing, any, anything I've ever done. And that's why once you get that bug in to really truly help people for the right reasons. And, you know, and I'm not saying that building your business isn't the right reasons, but I tend to get a little bit, I, get, I tend to tick a few people off when I get on stage and I'm like, I'm not really trying to hit sell you anything. And, and look at my bio, there's no link to anything right now. I mean, maybe in the future, who knows, you know, but, my, my duty in life now is to give back and, and serve the people that I can help. Um, and it's my pleasure. And it doesn't matter what race, 
what color, what gender, what anything. Um, I'm just happy to, to be there to help. I love that, David. That was just so inspiring. I'm sitting here listening to this, like, a, you know, wishing I was in one of your lectures when I was in university, because that would have just oh. completely changed my trajectory. I would no, have gone, we, I would have been a trader. No, no, it's, it's, it's actually, it wouldn't be so much about being a trader. I'll send you a nice note that I got from one of the kids from a couple of years ago. I always, every once in a while, I get these emails from these kids. Because I'm the teacher that literally just closes the door and says, listen, I'm going to curse. I'm, I don't know where some of this stuff's going to go. I'm going to go on tangents. But by the time you're here, you're going to learn about life, right? And I mean, like at this last class I taught a year ago, they're like, David, you taught us more just by talking. You know, and, I, and there would be no syllabus, no nothing. We go on hot topics. We talk about what's important, what's going on. And, we and I said, listen, Republican, Democrat, I don't care. I'm an independent. We're going to talk from all sides. And the greatest thing about the trading floor was that there, we got into fights with people. I mean, we got into fights with people before there was a keyboard, right? So on the trading floor, there's a thing called a floor committee. And actually, because it was this badge behind me, it's this floor committee. And we were the policing agency of the floor. So if you hit somebody on the floor, it was a $5,000 fine and a two-day suspension. And, and it was it worth happen, it. And it would happen normally? like Well, not, not all the time, but there are times people thought about it. So the minute you opened up your mouth to somebody, right, you were questioning, did I piss this person off so much and we roll up in there in bravado and it's all the you know stuff that he's going to take a swing at me now there's one story that i just beaten this guy for the board he was an excellent linebacker for penn state he stood next to me i was going for a trade i pushed him away to get to the trade because you had to run and literally tackle people sometimes and i noticed that he, he fell three steps and hit his head on the railing and he came up and he was bright red and they were holding him back. And he was calling me every name in the book, my mother, my sister, my co I mean, he was just, and I, they're holding me back because I'm, I have to be ripping him apart. Yeah. I remember saying to the guy next to me, whatever you do, don't let me go. And he's like, why? Because if I get close, he's going to kick my butt. And it, that could be good for me, you know? So they all start laughing. So we get thrown off the trading floor. You know, we get fined $2,000 each, flown off, thrown off the trading floor. We're walking off the trading floor. Now, I had just beaten him for the aboard. We had just had this fight. We had just said all these things to each other that in any other business, forget it, right? And by the time we hit the doors of the trading floor, he looks at me and I look at him and go, he goes, when do you want to go for lunch? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just go over there. And we just hung out all day. But that's the way it was on the trading floor. And that's what's so frustrating now with all these people that are so mean behind keyboards and it's just terrible that we 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 went after each other. I mean. Nose to nose, um, brutally, verbally, you know, and sometimes physically. But by the time we walked out that door, we were buddies and we could have differences of opinion. So what I would do in my classes, I would say, we're going to put yourself, I go, who here is a Republican? Let's talk about something good that the Democrats are doing. And I would say to the Democrats, let's talk about what the Republicans are doing good. And I want you to both talk to each other. You know, and I would say I want you to learn that you can have the respect of agreeing to disagree with two different sides of the same issue. But we're all human beings and you have the right to feel this way and you have the right to feel this way. And I gave them this experiment during Thanksgiving. And I said, whenever, because it was very heated politically, you know, two years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, even this year. Even this year. And I said, when everybody's ripping each other apart at the table during Thanksgiving, I don't want you to say a thing. I go, and then when it comes down as a quiet period, just say, okay, I can understand your point. I don't really agree with it. I kind of understand your point. I said, but let's now have a conversation about this. Okay. And be the guy in the room or the girl in the room that I say, when there's chaos, there's opportunity and chaos, if you don't lose your head when all everybody's getting crazy, and that comes from the poem, If, that I, that I give all my students. My father gave it to me. I gave it to my son. My mentor has it on literally on a two-story of his office in his brownstone, you know? And look up the poem, If, one day. It's amazing, right? And it talks about if, those, if you can keep your head while all around you are losing theirs, right? And this is the thing. People need to learn to keep cool in a chaos situation because what I taught all my kids is like when the crap hits the fan on the trading floor, I was one of... 17 traders brought down to Quantico to be drilled by all the generals to figure out how we thought so quickly on the trading floor without being told direction, but also most importantly, that how to handle our own consequences. Because when I had a bad trade, that was my money I lost, not somebody else's. But after I lost the money, how did I react, right? 
So this is what I would teach my kids in the class, and which is what I teach people, the older people that I mentor and, and coach, but the younger kids that I do it for free, is about how to react when, when the crap hits the fan, to keep your head on you when everything is going crazy, and be that person in the room that sees the opportunity in the chaos. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating now to see what's going online because everybody's so mean. They're so quick to judge. And it's, I think we're going down a rabbit hole that's very dangerous. David, I don't know if you're familiar with stoicism, but it's, it's becoming more and more popular, um, like stoic philosophy. And the whole concept of it is removing emotion from thought processes and trying to be um, still and rational and hearing other people out. So a couple of days ago, I posted something about um, how important it is to talk to people that think differently than you do. So that- Oh, absolutely. Listen, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, right? So that's the definition of, of Mr. Spock in Star Trek. He, mm -hmm. he, He's a big he, stoic, yeah. Yeah, he was completely logical. But the, the biggest problem that we have now is back in my day, let's say you had people, I'm an independent. So you went out for dinner with 10 people. You had four people with Democrats, four people with Republicans, two of us were independents. We'd have this great debate, you know, at dinner. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we wouldn't agree with each other. And then, oh, you're kidding me or that. You're nuts or this is BS or whatever. And then you drive home and you'd be in the back of your head. But you'd have all those voices in your head of the people that agreed with you, the people that didn't agree with you, and people like me that agreed with or disagreed with both sides. So it gave you the chance to process to, um, at least maybe you're not a thousand percent right, right? But now what's happening because of social media and the algorithms and the artificial intelligence, everybody's being funneled into the same room, hearing the same thing. So theoretically, everybody in the world is being brainwashed to believe that everything that they think is right. I said it at lunch today, somebody go, if I got, I'm a little heavy. Okay, I'm a lot heavy. But if I got put into a room, with, let's say just call it, it was a very large gentleman's room, because we have to be politically correct now. Mm -hmm. can't say you know, I can't call myself fat, but I can because I'm saying it to myself. But I'm in a very large gentleman's room. By the end of that room, I'm thinking that I'm skinny. I don't need to eat healthier. I don't need to lose weight. I don't need to lose because everybody told me how wonderful I am. You know, and the problem is going back to your point, we're getting to a point when you don't have the cross communication. And not only that, people don't even want to hear it anymore. You saw people interviewed, and I saw people interviewed, and I said, well, did you? You know, for Trump, did you listen to the, the Trump people were like, no, why should I go into a room that people don't agree? The, the Biden people, why should I go into a room that people don't agree? I'm like, well, because let's get different opinions. Let's get the conversation going. Because nobody, I used to kid around, except for my ex-wife, nobody's a thousand percent right. So uh, it's as simple as that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think she was wrong once, but then she said she was right. So that's a whole other story. But, um, but you know what I mean? So I think we're getting to a point today that there are so many false narratives that are coming out on the social media and everybody's a superstar and everybody's a hero and everybody, and I'm sorry that not everybody's a superstar and that's okay, but you can be a superstar in your own life, you know, and to be honest with you, I'm going on a friend of mine's, his parents have this huge boat. I think I might take some pictures and just keep posting them. This is not mine. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I'm sitting in front of it. It's like a 110 foot yacht. Right. And I'm just going to go, not mine. The true entrepreneur will admit when it's not yours. That could be the tagline. Not mine, not mine, not mine. I think that right. would go viral. Honestly, David, I think you should do it. If, if yeah. the goal is to reach as many people as possible. And right. And just say, you know, the true entrepreneur will tell you that they're just a normal person. You yeah. know, that, that it is what it is. Now, my, my issue is that my mentors, I've been very, very, very lucky. I mean, my father was a great mentor. Um, but through the exchange... You know, I was called out by, this was an enemy, okay, at first. And then he was my chairman. Um, and then I'll never forget that how mentorship starts sometimes, okay, because we were really, we were competing companies. And he, I actually convinced him to become chairman, but we were at a board meeting one day. And I made, I forgot it was during the day board meeting. And I said, he made a comment, I go, sure, a lot of traders think that way. Now imagine this, there's 24 people around the boardroom table, uh, 28 senior staff, and it's being recorded. And he just quietly looks at his watch and he goes, okay, good, go downstairs and bring up three. I'm like, what? Now he is a West Point graduate, you know, whole big guy. And I'm like, what? And he's like, we'll wait. And he just, he just shut up. Just called me out, right? 
And he, then I, then I looked at him and I finally said, you know what, we'll talk about this later. He's like, yeah, we will. So he continues the meeting after the meeting, he puts his arm around me and he whispers in my ear, he goes, you will never do that again in your entire life. And I'm like, yep. And that was the last time I ever said something that I couldn't back up a thousand percent. And that's the problem that you see out there today because people make all these claims, like everything on my bio, I don't have everything on my bio, but everything that I've done, but the things I put on my bio, you can check them, double check them, you know, put me on sodium pentafol, I'll tell you it's real. So this guy at that moment started becoming my mentor. And then when we went through 9-11 together, which is something that we can talk about because I'm a 9-11 survivor, um, we were in a room together, it was just me and him. We had to call all the wives and families of the people that we lost that day because we were across the street from the World Trade Center. So this guy's you know, become my mentor. And from my, it's funny, from my enemy competitor to mentor to close friend, and he's worth $2.8 billion now. And if you saw him in the street, and his wife out, he would be in jeans and a t-shirt, probably not shaven. His wife would be in a nice pair of jeans, but probably some rock shirt, rock and roll shirt, no jewelry. Okay. And you would never know that he's worth that kind of money. And that's the difference between what I call the true mentors and the true entrepreneurs and the true everything. And these guys that have to be in front of their Bugattis and, you know, their boats and their planes. Yep. Like we all said, he goes, you know, when you've really been on a plane and you've been on a plane enough that you don't need to post it, which means if you're posting a picture of you on a private jet, it probably means you've really never been on one, you know? Um, and it's just a false narrative to all these kids out there and these young entrepreneurs that they, we can talk about that whole concept. Yeah, I, I definitely want to dig into that. How that's ruining people. Um, and it's giving them a false narrative. I mean, I heard, you watch this um, show on HBO called Fake Famous. It's amazing. No, I haven't seen. I oh, love all HBO got, shows, you, though. No, you got to watch it. They do it. They do a documentary on four people like you, me, and two other people that nobody knew, and they make them famous on Instagram by their pictures, by who, where they tagged it, and they show how there's a room in California that's like a quarter of a room that looks like a private jet that they charge seventy five dollars an hour, I think, and it's booked ten hours a day for people to come in have a bowl of nuts, put a flower on, take a picture and look out the window like this, like they're really in a private jet. Okay, That's so when crazy. you watch, you should have all the people, the one thing that people get out of this interview, watch that show, watch The Social Dilemma and Fake yeah. Famous, okay? Because you put those two things together, you see how the entire planet's being brainwashed on what they think the version of success is, which is raw. Somebody said to me in one of my um, lectures, they go, David, you know, what's the number where you know you're a success? What numbers? I'm like, what do you mean what number? Like, How much? You know, and then I finally figured out what he was talking about. And, and I said, okay, one. They're like, what do you mean one? One dollar? I go, no, change one person's life and you're, you're successful. You know, make a difference in somebody's life other than your own. Take the time out to make, change somebody's passing, change their timeline, be there for somebody, give them some advice. Because everybody can be mentors in all different stages of their life. Um, but make a difference. And then you become a success because I always say in my classes, and I'll send you one of the videos, success has nothing to do with the clothes you wear. I don't know what just happened. Clothes you wear, the car you drive or anything. Success comes from within. Leadership comes from within. And this false narrative that's coming around these, you know, with these pictures and, you know, I'm worried about your generation that when they find out that it's a real world out there um, and they're gonna get your teeth knocked in a bunch of times and not everybody comes to be the superstar, but as long as you tried your best and you did what needed to be done and you're good to yourself and your family and your kids and whatever, um, you're a success. I mean, there's one story I always talk about that my badge was is in the uh, Museum of American Finance down in New York, my trading badge. And I would always go when I came to New York to go to the Museum of American Finance, but I never went in. I just sat out in front and watched the coffee guy who's in this coffee truck. Happiest guy you've ever seen. Dance, like when he didn't have his customers there, he was dancing. I did this for, I think, every time for two or three years. And then I finally went over to him and he goes, what do you do? He goes, I noticed you. Well, you just stand there. You never find my coffee. You never... I'm going to be honest with you. I watch it. And then he goes, why? I said, because you've got it all figured out. You're the happiest guy I've ever seen. You know, he says, and you really are. I mean, you know everybody's customer's name. You, you, you ask them about their family, this, whatever. I talk about you in my class all the time. So I figure it's time to say hello.
He was like, David, I told him my name. He's like, David, I was told that I didn't have six months to live. And that was seven years ago. You know, and it goes back to what I say after 9-11. Um, and I said this on Clubhouse the other night, right? When, you know, somebody says, how do you conquer fear? And I said, when I was running away from those buildings, knowing that my friends were being crushed, it puts fear into a new definition of fear. And I tell people, unless it's fatal, don't get upset about it. Don't get freaked out about it. Anything can be worked out. And that's what this guy was seeing too. I call it being out of the matrix. When you stop believing in all the BS and you stop getting caught up in all this stuff, and you realize that any day you wake up is a good day. You know, I always say when people say to me, oh, I had a bad day. I'm like, no, you didn't. No, I had a bad day. I go, no, you had a frustrating day. You had a tiring day. You had an annoying day. You had a day that was a pain in the ass. So, but a bad day is when you don't make it home. That's a bad day where your loved one doesn't make it home. So when I, I try to get everybody to put things back in perspective, and I try to take the hype out of everything, because that's all that's out there now. It's hype. Yep. You know, and like when I used to be on CNBC and Fox, the producers would always say, kind of like when you're on, because you come to teach our audience. It's not about showing how smart you are, what you've done, or trying to, you know, toot your own horn. You just kind of tell it like it is. And I would get calls from our people that saying, get this guy back on because he connects. And you hear some of these people yelling and I get on some of these clubhouse things. And I'm just like sitting there, like banging my head against the wall, hearing about some of these things. And Listen, there are some great things and some great people, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, I've met some terrific people along the way. Uh, but I think in some ways, you know, people are getting into these rooms and there's some, not on purpose, but there's the services being made. Um, I heard one person say, and I felt terrible for that, her friend committed suicide. So she became a life coach to help people with suicide. Noble thought process. But I went to school for my first year of mental health counseling for my master's. I didn't, I ended up getting, doing another thing after that, after the first year I didn't come back. But you got people that are social workers, that are psychiatrists, that, you know, that are PhDs, that really where those people need to talk to. Because, you know, just like, I don't know how to drive the, I know how to drive a boat. I've got my, all my license and everything. But if you put me on the, on that yacht, that 110 foot yacht and tell me to drive it, I'm going to, I'm going to crash it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, too many people are leaning on too many false narratives and it's, it's, it's concerning on a lot of levels and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what's going on. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask about uh, your experience with like with 9-11 and, and how that came about because you, you briefly touched upon it and you're talking about fear. And I think when you've gone through like tremendous experiences like that, it just completely changes your frame of reference and, um, one of my favorite books by Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about how when someone has a will to live, they can live through anyhow. Yes. And once you've been in, a, in something that you're truly out of control of, it was the first time in my life that I felt that I had no control. Not sure if I was going to live or not, you know, because when the buildings were coming down, I'll, I'll backtrack. But let me start from the beginning. So I, I, I wake up in the morning, I drive in, I park in the South Tower um, in the, I think it was yellow level. They have different color levels. And I had made a, um, I had made a club, a breakfast club for all the traders. So for $800 a year, you got free breakfast that windows the world every morning that you wanted it. And then you got to go to the, you know, a special seat at the bars and this. And, you know, of course I did this so I can save $800, but, you know, I got all these people to join. So we had this club up there and I went for breakfast. It was in a hectic world. It was great to sit up, up there, have breakfast overlooking, you know, the water and the Brooklyn bridge. And I remember the, the woman that used to check me in and all the people that worked there and the waiters and everything that were my friends after time. So I was going up there and I, I went into the express elevator, which takes about a minute to get up there. And there was an issue with the express elevator and the guy's like, listen, you got to take the local. So me being as lazy as I am, I'm like, I'm not taking the local because the local guy, well, I think it was up to 56, cross over, go to Sky Lobby, go up, it's a total pain in the butt. So I left the building, walked across the street, sat in my chair, the plane hit. Um, so we, my father calls me up and says, there's news that maybe a Cessna hit the World Trade Center. So I'm like, hang on for a second. I go run into this other office across the way, I look out the window, come running back. I say, listen, if it's a Cessna's terrorism, because there's literally like 11 floors missing right now, you know, and then 
he hangs up and then he calls me back and I've never heard my father panic ever. And all of a sudden he screams to me, get the you know what out of the building now. Because they showed that the plane was turning, coming around and going right over our building before it hit the second building. The second building gets hit. Um, we all evacuate our building. We're standing outside. You can literally feel the heat from a block and a half away. You can see people looking behind them, looking forward and then just jumping, holding hands and jumping mm-hmm. because the heat, the heat was so tough. I knew I had my friends up there. I knew I had my people that I was going to meet at breakfast up there. There were 12 people that cleared my company that were up there. And I was a board member at the time, a new board member. And so we all met in front. We realized that we're not going to be able to open up the exchange again. And then as we were starting to walk, I've never seen my friend run so fast in his life. And I go, what? And he points. And what people don't understand, the first building did not go pancake like everybody thinks. It cracked in on, on itself, and the roof started sliding down towards us, like a surf, you know, think about surfing a wave. So we went running up West Street, dazed. Uh, we were lucky we were just ahead of the smoke. We finally got to my friend's apartment at five o'clock, but trying to stop it off in different areas because we were so bewildered. He found his driver, you know, he thought his driver was dead. Uh, got his car, we went out of the Midtown Tunnel, literally at 90 miles an hour got home, had an emergency board meeting that night with this guy that I was telling you was my mentor, had gotten a call from the White House saying, you got to get the, the energy market up again because world oil prices were going crazy and we didn't have electronic trading at the time. There was no daytime electronic trading. So we were called and we went back down there basically the day after, got special passes from the mayor to get through. Um, saw things that we shouldn't have seen. The smell was just crazy. Um, the fire was burning for three months and we got the exchange up and running and it was an amazing effort by the entire board uh, we all this my friend ran it like a military operation and had us all do these specific things if we could open if we couldn't open we even put a guy in a taxi and had the taxi driving out to chicago just in case we couldn't open the building again to put our to work out a deal with chicago uh because flights weren't going on and off and the phone lines were mostly down so um so we ended up opening up on that Tuesday. You know, we got cell towers and we got everything. My friend was up on the roof with generators with oil pouring out of the generators. We were the first exchange to open up. Stock market was no big deal because they were on the other side, but the World Trade Center fell to us. And we stuck a thousand people in by day, down the river, up the wall, traded for four hours, got them back out, put Goldman stole our boats, which is another story. And then once Goldman stole our boats, we got permission to have everybody walk through Ground Zero for two months, which, you know, now we all have some health issues, you know, some uh, rheumatology issues, some inflammation issues. But, you know, what 9-11 taught us, you know, I had to go to 18 funerals and wakes and, you know, those are just, I missed a few. But what 9-11, there was a moment during 9-11, I'll never forget that I caught the boats leaving out of the ferry in the dock. You know, because we were right on the water, people were jumping. You could see the flames, and there was a moment in time. It was a perfect moment in time when time stopped. And I'll never forget. And I call these time life moments where your time, your life timeline can shift in either direction, good or bad. But at that moment, I knew for the first time in my life that life will never be the same again. It's very rare that. I guess it happened during Pearl Harbor and having their own things, but and probably when very, your kids are born too, like yeah, no, oh yeah, absolutely. But that's the wonderful thing. It was actually my son's yeah. birthday yesterday. I said, "Listen, your your birth and my daughter's birth, oh, there's, there's nothing better." But when you go through a moment in time that you know that your heart sinks, doesn't rise. I mean, when your kids are born, you're, you get scared. So all this like, where's the where's the owner's manual? You know, I said to the nurse, "Are you getting the car with us?" Like, no, go home. But this was a moment in time when when your heart just sinks. I had one other time like that when my mother got sick, but this I knew on a worldwide level, there was a fundamental shift of the way everybody was gonna look at life. On the good note that for a very short amount of time, the world pulled together, the country pulled together. It didn't matter if you were Democrat, it didn't matter if it was Republican or independent or libertarian or you know straight, gay, whatever, it didn't matter. Everybody was together. And it's sad that during the pandemic that we couldn't recapture some of that spirit of pulling together to beat this, whether we agreed with our views or not, but that we're all human and that we're all, you know, Americans, foreigners, who care? Mm-hmm. But this was, this proved to me, I always said that, and I found that I was wrong, that the world will never get together until the aliens come 
and try to destroy the world and the world's got to work together to save it, like what you see in the movies, right? And then I realized in this pandemic, that won't happen because if the world couldn't come together now, because this virus was the alien, you know, and we needed to pull together and stop arguing about BS. The one thing that I, I had a very tough time and I still do, you know, between my mother dying at 55, 9-11 going blind in my right eye from a bad accident, um, especially after 9-11, I had a tough time sitting around dinner tables and listening to people bitch. Because I was the guy, I thought I had I lost my filter after 9-11 until I met somebody from high school that when I said that, they started laughing. Like, David, you never had a filter, you know? So because I don't know what you're talking about, but I would be the guy at the table that would look at people and I would left dinners, you know? And I would go, you gotta be kidding me. This is what you're upset about? I said, is your family healthy? They're like, yeah, your kids healthy? Yeah. I go, you healthy? They're like, yeah. I go, then shut the, you know what? I go, this is not something to get upset about. Okay, so you didn't get the car that you wanted or your house didn't work out or this, that or whatever. But your kid didn't get into the, the number one choice, but they got into the two and three choice. And, and I would be speechless because I just couldn't take it. You know, because I saw that all these people that died and jumped out the window, I mean, they found literally my, one of my friend's body, like half the body three blocks away, the other half the body in the, the rubble. And, and that's why I became a board member of the 9-11 Tribute Center, which the Tribute Center was actually the memorial before the main memorial opened. You know, there was a, there was a small one. But so I was a tour guide there and I was a board member there. And again, it's all about giving back. But, you know, what 9-11 did for me is, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Matrix. Um, it's well, a classic. Yeah, so when Neo steps out of the Matrix, right? I can always tell when I meet somebody that's no longer in the Matrix. There's a, there's a bond, right? And then sometimes I'll start talking to somebody and I'll go, you're out of the matrix. They're like, what does that mean? I go, something horrific happened in your life. And they're like, yeah, how do you know? I said, because we're seeing, we're seeing life differently. We're not in that bubble. It's almost like sometimes I feel like I'm watching a movie in front of me because seeing everybody in the matrix that they're worried about, is their tennis game on or is their golf game and they didn't get the right tee time or, you know, bliss that or whatever. And you learn that once you've truly been something I mean, like, I remember when my mother got cancer and she was on this new chemo and the, the initial reaction on this, the minute you get it was possibly an instant heart attack. So we're standing there, they got the crash cart, they're slowly putting it in and, and that's pressure, right? You know, not whether or not, you know, you're happy about which place you're going for dinner or, you know, watching these people die and smelling this and, and knowing that, you know, you got all the survivor's guilt for not being up there that day on a club that you created. And then when I got hurt with my, I lost my eyesight, my right eye, that, you know what? It puts everything in perspective. And what I try to teach the kids in class is that if it's not fatal, you can deal with it. You know, and as a trader, the greatest thing is, is that I lost on more of my trades than I made. So I always say, if I got, if I sat on my butt the whole time being upset about all my losses, well, how the heck was I gonna, you know, do a good trade? So people have got to learn how to stop whining and stop self-loathing and go, okay, yeah, it didn't work. I screwed up or it screwed up or it just blew up or it just didn't work. Next. Okay. And that's what the generals took us down there because they wanted to see how we pivoted so fast. So I can be a little bit obnoxious. I'm very empathetic, so empathetic, but I don't have a lot of patience on when the empathy is, they're not really needing empathy. They just want a little stroking and stroking does no good for anybody. You know, they fall into like a victim mindset. And, yeah. yeah. You know, like, listen, Mike, had a, a, you know, we can go over my accident for my eye as well, but I've been through a lot of crap. And people look at me and they go, how do you have such a great outlook? I said, you're in so much pain. I mean, I'm in pain all day, every day from my 9-11 stuff, my headaches. And I'm like, it's better to be in pain than to be dead. You know, my old joke is if I woke up and I wasn't in pain, I figured I was in heaven. Because obviously something was different. So... So that's, that's the 9-11 situation. But it was a fundamental you know, shift in the way that I looked at life because I felt that if all those people died and I didn't get something out of that to enhance my life and the life of others, then they died in vain. You know, and if I can live my life with a little bit more of a positive attitude because they didn't have the chance to do it, then I've served them well. David, I definitely don't think that they died in vain because you're you're here, you're sharing your story, you're going to inspire so many more people. So I'm so grateful for you being here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very kind. 
Something that I think about all the time is how like life is, is an illusion. And you're talking about like removing yourself from the matrix. I think it really is like you choose to decide what you bring attention to and, right. and then that manifests. No, you're hundred percent. Next time you're out for dinner, your listeners are out to dinner. Look at the table to your left, look at the table to your right and look at it like you're watching a movie and you'll see that some of the stuff is just like, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. Um, but when you hear somebody complain at your table, for a second, think about it and go, on a scale of one to 10 on a real, is this really worth complaining about? Or is it just, you know, we always say that the, the problems that most of us have are the problems that people in the rest of the world wish they had, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to keep that in perspective. I love this one girl that wrote, she, it was going around the internet, how she was going to write this whole thing about how, you know, this country sucks and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And then she looked around the Starbucks and she's like, wait a minute, I'm this age, I'm in Starbucks, I'm paying my $5 for coffee, I'm on my free internet, on my computer, on my Apple computer, and I'm just about to write that this is awful. You know, it's maybe not everything that I want. And it was a great piece. It was a very enlightening piece about how she was going in one direction with the, with the article and then she changed it over because she had a self-realization of saying, listen, everybody's complaining about stuff. We should be thrilled that this is the stuff that we have to complain about. I remember when the hashtag first world problems was trending and truly like some of the things that that came up, like I hate when my phone charger is too far away from my bed. Like you have electricity, you have a home, you have a roof over your head. It's right. You're running water. Yeah. I mean, like, stop it. And I've looked at people and I'm like, stop it. You know, I'm the guy at dinner goes, you got to stop, you know, and people are like, oh, here it goes again. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I can't, I can't take it. I'm in too much pain all day to listen to this. But no, but if somebody's truly hurting or somebody's sick or their business is really failing or they have issues and that are going to affect them and their family, I am all in. I will be there a thousand percent. But you and I both know some of the things that you listen to that people think they've had a bad day or things that you screwed up. I'm like, no, it's, you know, you missed your clubhouse during, you know, chat tonight. Okay. It's not fun, but it's not going to destroy your life. Now, Clubhouse has been having so many issues. Yesterday I was hosting a room and it kicks me out midway. I think they're they're getting really popular. So many people are are joining. They're getting and- really popular. I'm not sure if the the clubs for everybody is going to be a good move for them or not. I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, but and the same though, you you can really find some great rooms in there. You know, hundred percent, David. While we're on the topic of social media, though, I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier, where people are just so blinded and the image that somebody has and portrays is so fake. Like you can fake everything. We were talking about numbers. Like, I don't know if you remember the one guy that came in to the clubhouse room and said he made um, a couple million dollars off of the, the AMC, um, the Wall Street bets. Was that the $20 million guy that said he made, and I called him out? Yeah. And then it it actually, that tweet went viral. Somebody tweeted. I saw that. It's going to a thousand dollars. And I just went, I just hit the button. I'm like, I'm a trader. I know this stuff. Don't mess with me. I'm like, how? Well, because I went to 200. That's your logic. You know, I'm like, and by the way, we, we've been all trying to figure out if you had $28,000 in your account, I've sent this out to people, of what kind of options that you had to buy and hold on to. I mean, the numbers just don't work out, right? Mm-hmm. And also anybody that really made that doesn't, you know, be smart, keep your mouth shut. You don't put it in your profile because you're asking. And, the, and where I really screwed up on that, and normally I'm pretty good on this and I screwed it up, was that my answer should have been like, okay, it's going over a thousand. Are you willing to put in every dime you made right now? Just go buy back the position right now. And you can't get out till it hits a thousand. And if the guy says, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, then you're full of crap that you don't believe what you're saying. Because mm-hmm. if you truly believe what you're saying in my business, you got to put your money where your mouth is. It's as simple as that, you know? Um, but no, I was just sitting there and going, why? And this guy, and there's a difference between being a trader and getting lucky a couple of times. I mean, I've done thousands of trades in my lifetime, and I've done this really bad. I've got my butt kicked, and I teach about the trades that I did bad on. I don't teach about the trades I did good on because there's no there's no lesson in that, you know. So, yeah, that guy, I was just sitting there going. And then a few friends of his said, "No, no, it really happened. It really happened." I'm like, "Well, good for him," but I know people like this, one of my former partners. He went. He made forty million on the IPO. And then years later, he just passed away this year. I found out not only did he go through 40 million of his, he went through some of mine because I didn't know the deals that I was putting money into were really just going into his pocket. You know, so you put a kid that like that that's showing it off already, 
good luck. You know, once this, and I, this is what we can talk about in the next round. But there's one thing about making money. There's another thing about keeping it. Definitely. And people don't get that. People don't know how to live below their means. Like even now you think there's so many people that go broke trying to look rich, right? Try, like oh, you were saying about- guy, But think about it. This guy tried to do it with 40 million and he went broke. He had to have all the private jets. He had to do this. He had to do that. $25,000 a month for an apartment in Florida on the beach. You know, um, and, you know, I'll send you one of my videos where it says, you know, it's a whole lecture about money management that I give to the college kids about living below the radar. I live the smallest house that I've ever lived in as an adult. Okay. I did the 7,000 square foot house with a 40 yard lacrosse field, AstroTurf field, and 20 full two acres. I got to tell you something. I'm in a, I'm in a 3,100, maybe 2,900 square foot house now. You know, my taxes are a tenth of what it was because I live in Florida. I was going to ask what your property taxes were like for that property. Well, that was like that property, the taxes were, I think, 68,000, and that was 10 years ago. Wow. But now here, it's like 4,500. I got to tell you something, I'm driving smaller cars. You know, once you get realize that you did all that and it really doesn't make a difference and you pull it all back, you realize it's not about that, you know? Um, and we could talk about value and in, 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 in the next show about, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that I did and I, some of the mistakes that I made, like partnering up with this guy, right? That used to be one of the chairman of the exchange. Um, but yeah, the false narrative out there of what success is, and what entrepreneurship is, is something that we might want to take up on the next one, because that's a longer conversation that we could have with you and your friend. Because I think that the term entrepreneurship has been so misused and so glorified. Um, and there's so many different ways that you can look at it. And I think, I think 99% of the advice is awful. When I was growing up, the term entrepreneur didn't exist. Like on, you weren't an entrepreneur, you were a businessman or a businesswoman, right. and, or you were an owner or, or you were a small business owner. Like you, small right. business owners, they, they go through so much, like their business is their livelihood. They put so right. much time and effort into that. And people don't realize like you're making so many sacrifices. You're sacrificing your time. You're sacrificing time with your family to grow this business because you believe in something. And I think- Right, but the whole the whole term, like my grandfather, I guess if you look back at it, he was an entrepreneur. He had a bagel store, okay. And then he had two and three and four, but we never looked at it and called, oh, you know, you're an entrepreneur. It's like you're a hardworking, you know, guy that's trying to build a business, you know. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is that when we we made a lot of money at the trading course, I mean, we were nuts, okay. This was high school with money, and you know, through the Gulf Wars and and all this stuff, and not once did we ever walk off and high five each other. And say, you know, say, oh, look how great we are. We did this today. We don't, we didn't tell people what we made. We didn't, you know, I love it when these people, they post their winning trades and I'm just laughing, you know, I'm like, if you were trading for me and you posted a winning trade, you'd be fired that day. Because it means that you're concentrating on posting that winning trade. You're not concentrated. And I think these people that post their winning trades are making a terrible mistake because they used to call me the trading shrink. And, you know, I, I risk matched 200 of some of the biggest traders in the world. And the whole thing about trading, it's all mental. You got to keep your mind in trading. And there's all these ancillary things that people are doing now to show off how great they are. I had a friend of mine that was one of the biggest crude oil traders in the world. He had one suit, okay, that he interviewed in. That was it, you know. He you would never know, like, the big traders. I mean, some of them were a little, you know, they get a little crazy, but... Some of the big traders, you never knew. You never heard what they made. And I was taught very young by my father, who was one of the biggest silver traders of all time. He goes, if you make money and somebody asks you, how are you doing? Just say, I made a little bit. And if you lost money, just say, I gave a little back. He says, because they're really not happy for you if you made a lot. Mm-hmm. And if you got your butt kicked, they're going to go home with a smile on their face. Because at the end of the day, they're just looking for a way to be pissed at you. You know? Um so this whole bravado that's out there now, with the, especially in the trading world that you see in these traders, I, I just, I can make them 10 times the traders that they are if they got off social media and talk, and wanted to talk about trading. You know, and not everybody should be trading. But it's, social media gave them, it made them who they are. They, It's like oh, an yeah. ego kick every time somebody, you know, they, they look at how many people like viewed their stories, for example, when they posted that kind of stuff. Right. And then it's all about that. It's about the likes, yeah. you know, I, as my, as the, one of the biggest gold traders ever said to me, I mean, we were, we were, we were part of my switch. We were a-holes on the floor. We ripped people apart. We were, 
it's like, and at one time I said, I go, doesn't it bother me when I was a clerk? I said, doesn't it bother you that this guy hates your job? Now, it didn't matter if you hated somebody, you still traded with him, right? It's the coolest thing. And he goes, David, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make money. And now it's the other way. You're here to make money and friends. And that doesn't always work because, you know, in trading, you got you have to be focused on the trade all the time. Um, it's a very hard thing to do when you're trying to be cool at the same time. And then you start making trades based on what you think you need to post. And then the, it's not a pure trade. It's not your, your, your mental capacity to think clearly in a trade. That's a whole other topic is not what it should be. But that's more of a technical topic. David, I think we'll wrap it up here so we can save some nuggets for part two. Thanks so much for coming on today. You were incredible. I'm so excited to share this with our audience. And for all you guys listening, part two is going to be even better. So stay tuned. That's going to be launching next Wednesday as well. Have a great day, guys.